coming up on Philosophy Talk. Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor, said to have a second language is to have a second soul. Which comes first, language or thought? People have been uh, debating this question for quite some time. I think it's interesting that we talk about language as not just a form of communication, but also as a mode of thought. We use language to think. Does that mean language must come before thought? What language is telling you is, these are the things that people before you have found important. The small set of categories that we find useful. Language is very sparse, and it only marks a, a very small proportion of what we actually know. Our guest is Stanford psychologist Lara Boroditsky. To me, it doesn't make sense to say, is it language that shapes thought or is it culture that shapes thought? Uh, one is a part of the other. Language and thought, coming up on Philosophy Talk after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of 91.7 KALW Loco, Innovative Public Radio for San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. And from that oasis of thought, we migrate to this oasis of the air, and from the air to the Internet via our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is cogito ergo blogo. Go check it out. And you can also get podcasts through our website. Now, Ken, today's topic is thought and language. Now, I know the difference between thought and language. Thought goes on in your head. Language comes out of your mouth. You have something more sophisticated to add? Well, yeah, well, it's not a question about the difference between thought and language. It's about the relationship between thought and language. I mean, you can have this view that the thoughts are up there just waiting to get out and you need some language and then boom, right? But you can also have the view that, that dates back to Sapir and Worf that language helps shape thought. I mean, the, the, the thinkable is somehow determined by the language in which you talk and, and, and think because language construes the world for you. And I, I think there's something to that hypothesis, although philosophers have kind of not liked it recently. I don't like it. I mean, <laughs> the big deal is supposed to be the Eskimos and snow. Now, even if, even if the facts are right, which I guess is in doubt, I would have thought the reason the Eskimos have a lot of words for snow is because they have a lot of different ways of thinking about snow. And the reason they have a lot of different ways of thinking about snow is because they have a lot of different kinds of snow that they have to figure out what to do in and with. No, but you're, but you're putting it too simplistically. You're thinking the world just impresses itself upon us, and then we just automatically, it demands to be categorized and thought about in a certain way. But no, we need these categories in our head. This dates back to Kant. The categories in our head construes the world for us. And if you don't think like Kant, there's a fixed set of categories, and that there's a very set of categories from language to language and culture to culture. Where do they come from? The language gives them to you, provides them for you through its grammar and its vocabulary, its syntax. Very persuasive right up until that the language gives them to you. I think if the Eskimos didn't know the difference between snow and sleet and a hole in the ground until they had language, they never would have had language because they would have all have fallen into no, the wait, sea. That's, you're explaining why they would have a language like that, but it's by having a language like that that they can think so richly about this. I suppose those were the facts, that they could think so richly about those things. I, I, I can see that language could kind of accumulate insights that uh, uh, somebody might not be able to master on their own. I think Ah, be, you've almost given away the ghost there. <laughs> I would think it'd be more plausible with kind of more abstract thoughts like democracy and freedom. But you know what we should do is we should we should find someone that has learned a new language late in life and can say, oh, you know, when I learned that language, 
my worldview changed. I could just think thoughts I couldn't think before. Well, a roving philosophical p reporter, Polly Stryker, she actually searched out a woman who's been trying to resurrect a dead language, a long dead language, and along with it, a long dead uh, worldview, she files this report. Historian and Ohlone native Linda Yamani has been known to sing jokingly, only Ohlone, because of the lonely work she's had in reviving Rumsian, the language spoken by her Northern California Ohlone ancestors. By the time I was born in 1949, I believe that there is only one other person living who died in the 60s who knew a few words. Other than that, the last person to speak my Rimsian language died um, in 1939. There may be as many as eight languages or dialects spoken by the Ohlone, but one thing's clear. The Rumsian dialect shows how nature was central to their worldview. One thing I've really noticed in my language work is the lack of generic terms for animals, plants, insects, you know, because my ancestors lived in the natural world. It really wasn't that particularly useful to have a generic term for bird, because in most cases they would be referencing a very particular bird that had a very particular cultural importance to them. For example, because the Ohlone ate acorns as a staple of their diet, they had very specific names for the nut. I'm not aware of ever having encountered the word that was just generic for acorn. Rather, I end up finding names for the specific acorn species, like Sirhin is the black oak, which grows up in the mountains, up at the higher elevations. Chapao is the tan oak, which is my people's favorite acorn. And Yuksh is the live oak. It's taken Yamani 20 years of studying wax cylinders and thousands of pages of anthropologists' field notes to piece together a dictionary. Rumsian words contain all the pronouns we might expect. We have, you know, ka for I, also means mine or my. The word for you is me. And then the word for he, she, or it is wa. But there have been some surprises for Yamani, including the word for thank you. Turns out it's not about thanking an individual, but rather sending out a message to a whole group. To say thank you, shududu, I'll use my ancestral village as an example. You'd say, shududu tuknukt. So to thank someone would be blessing their village. She found an Ohlone song about chasing away something that plagues people along the Northern California coast to this day, the fog. The song is, it doesn't say the word fog in it, but people just know that it's addressing fog because it says pelican is hitting your wife. And so it's telling fog to go back where you came from because you need to tend to things at home. The song's ending shows a kind of magical realism in the thinking of Yamani's ancestors in that they could shoo the fog away with a breath of air. 
The words connect her to the coastal life of her people and show her how they viewed the world. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Polly Stryker. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.